So this, uh, does anybody know what today is on the calendar? If you were to look at the calendar, what would it say the holiday is? Palm Sunday. Palm Sunday. What's that all about? Anybody know? Okay, so on Palm Sunday, we actually celebrate with people all over the world uh, the uh, triumphal entry of Jesus Christ. So Palm Sunday actually marks the beginning of the Holy Week, uh, the Sunday before the resurrection of Jesus Christ. You know, the day commemorates the triumphal entry of Christ into Jerusalem. This day we celebrate Jesus as more than just a suffering servant. We even celebrate him as more than just a savior. But we actually celebrate him today as king. So we could read the scriptures about Jesus riding in on a donkey and we could go home, you know, without much thought to it. But there's so much more packed into the celebration of Palm Sunday. You know, there's so much more packed into the meaning of the triumphal entry of Jesus Christ into Jerusalem. You know, this morning we're going to unpack this section of scripture, Matthew chapter 21. We'll define the kingship of Jesus Christ, the ironic details of the temple, as well as the different responses made by those standing around Jesus as he rode into Jerusalem on a little donkey. So uh, let's go ahead and read Matthew 21. We'll read verses 1 through 17. When they had approached Jerusalem and had come to Bethpage at the Mount of Olives, then Jesus sent two disciples, saying to them, Go into the village opposite you, and immediately you will find a donkey tied there and a colt with her. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, you shall say, The Lord has need of them, and immediately he will send them. This took place to fulfill what was spoken through the prophet. Say to the daughter of Zion, Behold, your king is coming to you, gentle and mounted on a donkey, even a colt, the fowl of a beast of burden. The disciples went and did just as Jesus had instructed them, and brought the donkey and the colt and laid their coats on them, and he sat on the coats. Most of the crowd spread their coats in the road, and others were cutting branches from the trees and spreading them in the road. The crowds going ahead of him and, and those who followed were shouting, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. When he had entered Jerusalem, all the city was stirred, saying, Who is this? And the crowds were saying, This is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth in Galilee. Verse 12, And Jesus entered the temple and drove out all those who were buying and selling in the temple and overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who were selling doves. And he said to them, It is written, My house shall be called a house of prayer, but you are making it a robber's den. And the blind and the lame came to him in the temple, and he healed them. But when the chief priests and the scribes saw the wonderful things that he had done, and the children who were shouting in the temple, Hosanna to the son of David, they become indignant. Indigent, I can't say that word. And said to him, Do you hear what these children are saying? And Jesus said to them, Yes, have you never read? Out of the mouth of infants and nursing babies, you have prepared praise for yourself. And he left them and went out of, uh, went out of the city to Bethany and spent the night there. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you so much for your word. We thank you, Jesus, for your triumphal entry into Jerusalem where you displayed your kingship, Lord. We pray, God, that today we would really take that into account, what it means that you are king. And not just king of a country or just king of somebody, but you're king of the entire universe, of the entire creation. All that there is, you are king. So, Father, we pray that you would help us to, to recognize and realize how important and monumental that is in our lives. So, Father, we pray that you would help me to preach, uh, not, not my words, but through, through you, Holy Spirit, that you would preach through me. And, God, that you would open the ears and the hearts of the hearers today. Would they receive your truth? Would they come to understand and know that you are king and they would bow their knee to you and confess you as, as Savior and King today? Father, we give you all the praise and all the glory. It's in Jesus' name. Amen.
So in this section of scripture here, Matthew 21, we find uh, many interesting details about Jesus entering Jerusalem. You know, along with these interesting details are many intriguing questions as well. Uh, You know, for instance, how do we know that Jesus is king? You know, what is the significance of his kingship? What clues do we have in scripture to signify that he's king? So uh, the, the first clue that we have is actually the fact that he's from the tribe of Judah. And, and the first clue that we have that tells us of his kingship of Jesus is found in the very beginning of the Gospel of Matthew. So if you were to turn all the way back to chapter 1, you don't have to do that. But uh, you'll find the lineage and the genealogy of, of Jesus Christ. So Matthew, the author of this Gospel, is sure to trace the roots all the way back to Jesus Christ to a man named Judah. Right? So why is that important? Who's Judah? What's he matter? You know, in the first book of our Bibles in Genesis chapter 49, verse 8 through 11, we actually find the answer to this question. I'll go ahead and read it. Judah, your brother shall praise you. Your hand shall be on the neck of your enemies. Your father's son shall bow down to you. Judah is a lion's whelp. From the prey, my son, you have gone up. He crouches, uh, yeah, he crouches, he lies down as a lion. And as a lion, who dares rouse him up? The scepter, the kingship, shall not depart from Judah. Nor the ruler's staff from between his feet until Shiloh comes. And to him shall be the obedience of the peoples. He ties his fowls to the vine and his donkeys colt to the choice vine. He washes his garments in wine and his robes in the blood of grapes. It's the kingship of Jesus Christ. It's the kingship of Judah. And he's talking about in these verses uh, that, that the kings of Israel will come from the tribe of Judah. And Matthew traces that all the way back to Judah. So what's that say? It says that Jesus is from the lineage of kings, right? Jesus is from the very tribe of Israel that kings come from. And more than that, he is the lion of Judah that is talked about here. It's prophesied about him well over 1,500 years before Christ even entered the earth. So uh, in the world, we know the lion as uh, the king of the jungle, right? We know him as the most fiercest, uh, courageous, and noble, and strong animal in the animal kingdom. You know, a cloud of reverence really hovers over the lion when we see him. And we can't help but behold the lion's splendor and his majesty and awestruck wonder. When you see a lion walking, what do you see? I feel reverence. I see power under control. How much more the lion of Judah? How much more the line of Judah, Jesus Christ. Oh, the reverence that encompasses the King of kings and the Lord of lords, Jesus Christ from the tribe of Judah. He is king. So our next clue that we see is we actually see it in the donkey. So let's read verses 2 through 5 here in chapter 21. Go into the village opposite of you. Immediately you will find a donkey tied there and a colt with her. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, you shall say, The Lord has need of them, and immediately he will send them. This took place to fulfill what was spoken through the prophet. Say to the daughter of Zion, Behold, your king is coming to you, gentle and mounted on a donkey, even as a colt, the fowl of a beast of burden. So our next clue signifying the kingship of Jesus Christ is actually another direct fulfillment of Old Testament Scripture, much like that we had on the board a second ago in Genesis. <clears throat> Yet it's in the form of a donkey. It's not in the form of a king. Uh, something that, that we'll find much of in the Gospel of Matthew is, is these words right here. This took place to fulfill what was spoken through the prophet or something along the lines of that. So Matthew had in mind... Uh, as an audience, his Jewish brothers and sisters, as he scribed the gospel of Jesus Christ, or the gospel account of Jesus Christ. So what could be of more use to try to persuade Jewish people to Christ than to identify the fulfilled prophecies from the very scriptures that they believed in? 
that you bring out and bring to a point of these things that were written about Jesus long, long, long ago to prove that he was the Messiah, to prove that he was the coming Messiah that the Jews were hoping in. And so just a side note here, in the first coming of Christ alone, he fulfilled something like, uh, I think it was over 350 Old Testament prophecies and scriptures. And so scientists and mathematicians have created a scenario that demonstrates the odds of one man fulfilling just eight of these prophecies from the New Testament. So the odds in numerical form, I, I suck at numbers, hold on. So the odds in numerical form are one in 10 to the 17th power. So that's one with one in 10 with 17 zeros behind it, I believe. Right, Daryl? Okay, thank you, man. <laughs> and like I said, I'm not good with numbers, so I need an illustration, right? I need somebody to draw me a picture to let me know what that really looks like. And, and so these mathematicians and scientists, they gave us one. The odds of one man fulfilling just eight of those scriptures or eight of those prophecies that I was just talking about is like taking silver dollars and covering the entire face of Texas with them two feet deep. And then you take one of those silver dollars and you put a mark on it, right? And you go and you hide it anywhere you want. Now you take, uh, and then you get somebody that's blindfolded, right? So you take this blindfolded person and you tell them, on the first try, you go and find that one silver dollar uh, in, in that two-foot pile, Texas size, two-foot pile of silver dollars. And your first try, you go and find that. That's the odds of Jesus uh, of a man fulfilling just eight of those prophecies. Two feet of silver dollars in Texas, mark one, blindfold man, go find it first rip. How, how possible is that? It's not going to be easy. In fact, it's pretty much impossible. You know, it, it's not very likely that he would be able to do that. So we see here in verse 5, Oh, prophecies continue to be fulfilled even today, and one, uh, and one day they'll all be fulfilled for eternity. Just, one of the, just eight of those prophecies would be that huge uh, probability of being able to be fulfilled, yet Jesus fulfilled over 350 of them. Like, right? Come on. You can't deny Jesus Christ. Uh, you can't deny him being the Messiah when you see all these things coming true. Uh, if you're a numbers person, you, you look at that statistics, you, or you look at those, those facts, you look at those, that illustration, and it's hard to deny it. So we see here in verse 5, actually, a direct quotation from Zechariah 9, verse 9, and it's also the fulfillment of Scripture. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout in triumph, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. He is just and endowed with salvation, humble and mounted on a donkey, even on a colt, the fowl of a donkey. What's so important about a donkey, anyways? What's it matter? Humble, right? Why is he on a donkey? Why did Jesus commandeer a donkey? He could have had anything else in the world he wanted, but he said, I want a donkey. Why is that important? Well, like as we had just said, uh, one is to fulfill the, the scripture that was written about him from Zechariah, but it's also to demonstrate his kingship. And how? How does riding a commandeered donkey make you a king anyways? So in those days, kings had the right to eminent domain, much like they had during war times here in America. In America. So in other words, they could take anything that belonged to somebody to use for their own personal use or purposes. Uh, during like the Revolutionary War, commanders uh, in the army, they would come in the name of the king and they would be able to take whatever it was that you had to use for their purposes to fight with, right? Whether it was a horse, a homestead, food, whatever it might be. So this is why we see Jesus say in verses 2 uh, through 3, and go into the village opposite you, and immediately you will find a donkey tied there and a colt with her. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, you shall say, the Lord has need of them. The Lord has need of them. And immediately he will send them uh, to you. 
So Jesus had an entry to make into Jerusalem, his kingdom, right? He had a prophecy to fulfill, and he needed a steed to do that on, right? Another interesting fact that history gives us is that nobody was ever allowed to ride on the king's horse. So he rode an unwritten donkey, right? Uh, We find in the gospel accounts of Mark and Luke that the donkey that the disciples brought to Jesus was a colt, a young donkey that had never been rode. And as R.C. Sproul had mentioned in his sermon on the triumphal entry in Mark, the Jews uh, probably have never seen a rodeo before, right? So I grew up in Missouri, and I grew up on a foxtrotter farm, okay? And I used to break horses with my cousin Morgan. And I'm telling you right now that it's not an easy job to break horses. It's a dangerous thing. If you ain't worked with that horse on the ground before, you jump on the back of that horse, and you know what's going to happen? You're probably going to go for a ride. It's not going to be easy, right? And and yet Jesus Christ, uh, I know it's rather simple of an illustration, but follow with me here. But the fact that Jesus rode on the colt of a donkey without a hiccup, a stubborn animal, like we know donkeys to be stubborn and hard, which no one had ever ridden, it blows my mind, right? And it shows me that Jesus is is, uh, king over all creation, how creation is subject under uh, under his feet. I know it's simple, but track with me there. And then we see the people's response in verses 6 through 7. The disciples went and did just as Jesus had instructed them and brought the donkey and the colt and laid their coats on or them, their coats on them and he sat on the coats. So our next clue that points to the kingship of Jesus uh, like I said is the response of those around him. And I want you all to see something here in this text, man. Uh, I want you to put your glasses on. I want you to really focus with me on just how much Jesus is exalted here. So after the disciples bring Jesus, the unwritten donkey, the unwritten donkey colt, uh, what, what, what do they do? They put their clothes on him. It's like me taking my suit jacket off and throwing it on the back of an old dusty old donkey, an old dusty old uh, beast of burden, throwing my suit jacket on there for Jesus to ride on. You know, and, and they literally picked Jesus up and they sat him on the back of the donkey. You can find that in Luke chapter 19. I think you'll throw it up there on the board. Uh, verse 35. They brought, him, they brought it, which is the donkey, to Jesus. And they threw their, colt, their coats on the colt and put Jesus on it. He's so exalted that his disciples come. They take their coats off, their outer garments. They throw it on the donkey and they pick him up and they set him on it. That's, that, that, that's language of a king. But wait, there's more. Look at the response of the people in Jerusalem. Uh, Let's look at verses 8 through 11 here real quick. Most of the crowd spread their coats on the road, and others were cutting branches from the tree and spreading them in the road. The crowds going ahead of him and those who followed were shouting, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. When he had entered Jerusalem, all the city was stirred, saying, Who is this? And the crowds were saying, This is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth in Galilee. A very great multitude had met Jesus uh, just outside of the East Gate, just outside of Jerusalem at the descent of the Mount of Olives. And what did they do? They practically rolled out a red carpet for the king to walk on, right? A red carpet made of palm branches in their garments and their coats. They threw it out on the road for the king to trod on on a donkey. It was his worthy triumphal entry to Jerusalem. It's what he deserved. Honestly, we should have been laying down for him to trot over us. But once again, this act of reverence also has Old Testament significance. So listen to the verse in 2 Kings 9, 13, when Jehu was an anointed king of Israel. Then each man hastened to take up his garment and put it under him on the top of the steps, and they blew the trumpet, saying, Jehu is king. 
When Jehu was anointed king, all the people, uh, they blew the trumpets, but they took their coats and they put it under the steps under him, rolling out a red carpet for the man to walk on, for the king to walk on. So how much different, how is this much different than what is going on here in the triumphal entry? It's not very much different and it's not without significance, guys. The great multitude spread their coats in the path of Jesus and they cried out, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. So the word Hosanna translates as save now. Save us now, Lord. The title of the son of David recognizes the messianic claim of Jesus Christ. The Messiah means the anointed one. It's the promised king from the line of David that would deliver and restore the Jewish nation. That's what the Jews were hoping for, right? Was for a king to come and deliver them from, uh, from their persecution, from their captivity, from the Romans. To some of us, the word Hosanna or the title Son of David just sort of blows right by us, right? We might have heard it so many times. Some of us may have never heard it at all. Be careful that that's not us today, church. Pay attention to the words. Pay attention to the scriptures. They're important. The king that God promised David in 2 Samuel verse 7 that would establish his throne and kingdom forever is the very king, Jesus Christ. Let's read it. 2 Samuel chapter 7, verse 12 through 13. When your days are completed and you lie down with your fathers. He, he's talking about David's death. So when your days are completed and you die and you're, and you're in the grave, I will raise up your descendant after you who will come forth from you and I will establish his kingdom. The line of kings from the house of David. He shall build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. Talking about Solomon. But establishing the throne of his kingdom forever is the messianic claim of Jesus Christ. He'll build a house for my name. Where, what does Jesus say? I'm going to prepare a place for you. He's building a house for his name. The great multitude that was crying this out was affirming the very kingship of Jesus as he rode in humbly on a donkey. These scriptures weren't new to them. They were crying out, King Jesus, save us now. Blessed are you who comes in the name of Yahweh. Blessed are you uh, who comes in the name of the only eternal, the only self-existent God. Blessed are you. So this brings me to my second major point. When Jesus came riding in humbly on a donkey, where did he come from? The second major point is uh, the irony of the east gate in the temple. Some of us don't really maybe think like that when we read our Bibles is, is the fact like where was he coming from and why is that important? Why are the words written in here that he was coming um, from the Mount of Olives? What's that matter? Who cares what direction he came from and who cares what gate he went through? That doesn't mean anything. So where, where did he come from? He came from the Mount of Olives and we find that in, in Matthew chapter 21 verse 1, Mark 11 verse 1, and Luke 19 verse 29. Now which direction is the Mount of Olives from Jerusalem? It's east, Right? Well, which gate would Jesus have entered through in his triumphal entry? The east gate. Pastor Rick's been talking to you guys about that through Nehemiah a little bit. So now you might ask me again, why is this important? And I want you to look up at the screen with me at Ezekiel chapter uh, 10, 18, and chapter 11, 22, and 23. So this is long before Jesus came. This is when the glory of the Lord departs from the temple. So then the glory of the Lord departed from the threshold of the temple and stood over the cherubim. And in chapter 11, verse 22 and 23. Then the cherubim lifted up their wings with the wheels beside them, and the glory of God, the glory of the God of Israel hovered over them. The glory of the Lord went up from the midst of the city and stood over the mountain, which is east of the city. 
So due to the wickedness of the nation of Israel and their failure to heed the prophet's warning to repent, the glory of the Lord departed from the temple around 587 B.C., give or take a few years. So 580 plus years ago, before, 580 plus years before Christ had ever came, the glory of the Lord departed from the temple. From the city of Jerusalem, the glory of the Lord departed and stood on the mountain, which is east of the city. The mountain that we know of to be the Mount of Olives. Okay, and I want you guys to see the beautiful irony that's laid here. You know, we'd have to be blind, deaf, or without understanding not to see this, guys. The glory of the Lord departed from the temple and rested on the Mount of Olives, the very mountain that Jesus rode in from in his triumphal entry into Jerusalem. He entered in through the east gate, the very gate the glory of the Lord exited through in Ezekiel. So even more, where did Jesus go when he entered Jerusalem? Jesus went to the temple. To the very place that the glory of the Lord departed from in the first place. The glory of the Lord went from the temple through the east gate to the Mount of Olives. Jesus Christ came from the Mount of Olives through the east gate to the temple. Does that signify something? I think it does. Let me read verse 12 through 17 again. And Jesus entered the temple and drove out all those who were buying and selling in the temple. And overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who were selling doves. And he said to them, it is written, my house shall be called the house of prayer, but you're making it a robber's den. And the blind and the lame came to him in the temple and he healed them. But when the chief priests and the scribes saw the wonderful things that he had done and the children who were shouting in the temple, Hosanna to the son of David, they become indignant. And he said to him, do you hear what these children are saying? And Jesus said to them, yes. Have you never read out of the mouth of infants and nursing babies, you have prepared praise for yourself. And he left them and went out to the city of Bethany or to Bethany, and spent the night there. So why did he go to the temple and cleanse the temple a second time? Why did he ride in and flip over the money changers' tables? Why? Why did he do that? The temple where the sacrifices were made and where the meeting place of God was supposed to be, it had been desecrated by illegitimate sacrifice and false worship, right? It was fake and, and, and phony worship. What does God desire as worship? A broken and contrite heart. And they, they didn't have that there in Jerusalem at that temple. Now I'm borrowing a bit from, uh, uh, borrowing a bit of this from uh, Dr. R.C. Sproul. And, and I just kind of want to plug him a little bit here that if you guys really want to hear a, a really good version of this, of this sermon, it's actually taken from, um, from the Gospel of Mark. I encourage you guys to get onto, onto YouTube and look up um, R.C. Sproul Triumphal Entry in the Gospel of Mark. I mean, it's so good. It's super biblical. It's beautiful. It's been one of the most powerful sermons I ever listened to. So in the Old Testament, though, the place where sacrifice was made, where God would dwell among his people, was first in the tabernacle that God instructed Moses to build. That was where he would dwell at, in this tabernacle. What's the tabernacle? It was like a tent, right? It was, it was a place with curtain and poles that God had described uh, Moses to build, and, and it was a temporary place. This is where God met with Moses face to face. This is where Moses would go in and he would come out and what would happen? His face would be shining, radiating the glory of God to the point that everybody was like, yo, dude, you got to hide your face. You got to get out of here. You're scaring me, man. This is the meeting place of God. The tabernacle, however, like I said, was not supposed to be permanent. It was to be replaced. And what was it going to be replaced by? The temple. The temple replaced the tabernacle, guys. And, and, and I want you to keep that thought in your mind for a moment and follow along with me as we look at something truly fascinating. And in and, and John chapter 1, verse 14, the Bible says this, And the Word, which is Jesus, became flesh and dwelt among us. 
So those words, you know, you guys know I like to play little word, word games here. But those, uh, or like to do a little play on words. Those words, dwelt among us, literally means to pitch a tent. So in other words, the word became flesh and tabernacled among us. Okay, so the tabernacle was a type of Christ. Now, keeping track with me here, what does Jesus say about the temple? In John chapter 2, verses 19 through 21... Jesus answered them, destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. The Jews then said, it took us 46 years to build this temple, and you will raise it up in three days? But he was speaking of the temple of his body. So Jesus related himself to the temple, the very meeting place of God, the place that God's glory was displayed, the very place that the sacrifice was made. So Jesus traveled through the East Gate as a king, yet he stood in the temple as a priest and as the sacrificial lamb and as the glory of the Lord. He replaced the tabernacle. He replaced the temple. He is the meeting place of God is Jesus Christ. The only mediator, the only way that we can come to God. You can't get there except through him. He cleansed the temple yet again for a second time, driving out false worship. And he did something beautiful, though. He healed the blind and he healed the lame. Jesus did in the temple uh, that day what only the perfect king, priest, and sacrificial lamb could do. He could heal the blind, the lame, scarred by sin and by death. Ordaining for himself worship and demonstrating that he alone was, uh, is the only way to truly worship God. So church, I want you to see that. And do you see that? The beautiful irony in these delicate yet very bold words of scripture. Do you guys see that? This brings me to my third point, that there are two responses. So our final point, our third and final point, I want us to look at the, uh, at the two responses of the triumphal entry of King Jesus. So look with me at verse 10 here, actually. We're going to jump back a little bit. <clears throat> but he had entered Jerusalem. But, uh, okay, sorry. When he had entered Jerusalem, all the city was stirred, saying, who is this? So all the city was stirred. Should we be surprised that all the city was stirred? Absolutely, by no means, right? At the first coming of Christ, okay, so this is actually kind of an, an Advent message, a coming of Christ. Uh, at the first coming of Christ, when the king of the universe was born of a virgin, he received the same response. Let's look at Matthew chapter 2, verses 1 through 3. Now, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, in the days of Herod the king, Magi from the east uh, arrived in Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star in the east and have come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled in all Jerusalem with him. At each of the king's triumphal entries, Jerusalem was stirred and Jerusalem was troubled. Every time that the king came, it was stirred and it was troubled. And at the last days, when he comes back, what's the world going to be? Stirred and troubled. Some of, the, some of the people of Jerusalem spread their coats and they laid out palm branches and ultimately accepted the arrival of King Jesus while the others were stirred to the point of denial. In Luke chapter 19, verse 36 through 40, actually uh, details uh, this event very vividly. And I'd like to read that. As he was going, they were spreading their coats out on the road. As soon as he was approaching near the descent of the Mount of Olives, the whole crowd of the disciples began to praise God joyfully with a loud voice for all the miracles which they had seen, shouting, Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. Some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to him, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. 
But Jesus answered, I tell you, if these become silent, the stones will cry out. So even the rocks would cry out and worship Jesus, right? If everybody else stayed quiet, all of his creation would worship him. Because why? He is king and he's worthy of all praise. So again, some received him with joy, recognizing him as king, while others told him to tell everyone to quiet down. Shut up. Jesus, tell them to shut up. You're not king. That's what they're saying. Tell those people to be quiet. He's not king. That's what the world tries to tell us Christians. Shut up. Jesus isn't king. I am. That's what the world is trying to say. My agenda is. This thing is. This is king. But you're not Jesus. That's what the world's saying. So you heard Jesus' response. They don't worship me. Even the stones will cry out. Jesus Christ will receive praise. He will receive the praise and the honor and the glory that he deserves. Amen. Listen to Philippians chapter 2 verse 9 through 11. For this reason also, God highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name which is above every name. There's nobody higher than Jesus. So that at the name of Jesus, every knee will bound of those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And that every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So when the King Jesus Christ enters a place, he will always receive a reaction, right? He is the prophet, the priest, the king, and the savior of the entire world. Why do so many of us sit here in this room today and not be shaken at the fact that Jesus is the one and only king? It blows right past our heads. Why are so many of you caught up on who is president? It doesn't matter. They're not kings, are they? Amen. Jesus is king. Yes. And he wins in the end. So why are so many of us trying to rule our own lives? Don't you guys know that you're not the king? You're not the queen? Don't you know whether you like it or not, one day you're going to bow your knee and confess that Jesus is Lord? Don't you know that? You might want to do it on the right side of the earth. You might want to do it on the right side of this. Don't you know these things? And if you didn't know these things, now you do. Now you're without excuse. Now you know. Know this, though, that Jesus Christ is King. He is Lord. He's Savior. And so many of us want Jesus Christ for what He has to offer, but we're unwilling to call Him Lord. We're unwilling to call Him King, right? So many, and I heard this thing from Eric Feesby one time, a guy that I know, and I know you guys don't know him, but a guy I know from Salem or uh, Springfield, Missouri. He said this. When he got saved, he got saved because he was trying to escape hell. He didn't want to go to a place where there was punishment. And he got saved. He had heard this message on the radio. And this guy had asked in his invitation, he said, Would you take heaven if Jesus wasn't there? Would you take heaven if Jesus wasn't there? And he said, That shook me to my core. Because the fact of the matter was that my answer was yes. I just wanted to be escaping the pain and the punishment that was coming from an eternal hell. But instead, I didn't have a relationship with Jesus Christ as my Lord. He only had him or wanted him as his Savior. He didn't want him as his Lord or his King. He didn't want him to rule his life. He didn't want to spend eternity with Jesus. Guys, let's get off our pathetic and puny thrones and give the praise to the one true king who is the only able one to save us. Get off our thrones. Get off of our pathetic, puny thrones and give worship to him. Let's fall on our knees humbly before him and say, you are king. And let's cry out, Hosanna, Hosanna, save us now, Lord. 
We must come to a point where we realize that we are not kings and we're not queens, yet we're only servants. We're only children of the king. We do not rule. Who do we think that we are? Not even in the tiniest fraction of our lives do we rule. And I love what Abraham Kiefer wrote regarding the supremacy of God. There is not one square inch in the whole domain of our human existence over which Christ, who is sovereign over all, does not cry, Mine. 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 Jesus is King and He is Lord over all. Face the fact. It's true. So over 2,000 years ago, a king was born to us as a little baby in Bethlehem. God himself stepped off of his throne in heaven and became flesh. Born of a virgin, Jesus lived a perfect, sinless life. He taught, he healed, he brought hope. The triumphal king rode into Jerusalem only to be betrayed, rejected, spit on, punched, whipped, humiliated. His crown that he received was a crown of twisted thorns. When pressed on his head, brought blood. A humble crown that he wore. He was nailed to a cross. The king of the world, the creator of the universe, took on this punishment for us. Because we all sin. Because we all fall short of the glory of God. From the drug addict in the streets to the millionaire in the office building. They've all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. We all need a savior. Amen. Amen. We all need a king. We all need a triumphal entry of Jesus Christ in our hearts to save us, right? Because we're unable to save ourselves. Because God must pour out His wrath on sin. He'd done that on Jesus. Because we needed a Savior. Jesus Christ, the King, sacrificed Himself to save those who, by faith, would turn and believe in His name. Nothing else. By faith. After His violent death on the cross, they carried His mangled body and scripture says that it was unrecognizable to an empty tomb where he lay dead and he laid alone for three days. But do you know what happened after three days, right? After three days, he rose again and he triumphed as king over sin and death, right? Death could not hold him. The grave could not keep him. Sin had no power over him. He rose again and demonstrated he was king. And he's now seated at the right hand of the father on his throne and he's coming back. The king will reign for all of eternity. He will usher in a new heaven and a new earth where there is no more pain and no more suffering. No more tears, sin, addictions, pride, slander, gossip, anger, strife. Only the perfect saints that have placed their trust in the name, will, or in the name of Jesus will be there. We'll be worshiping Him day and night for all of eternity, guys. So what's your response to the, uh, today to the, son, or to the kingship of Jesus Christ? Do you lay out your coats for him to trot on in his triumphal entry into your heart, into your life, saving you from your sins? Or do you shake your fist at Jesus telling him to shut up? Because there's only two responses, guys. There's only two options this morning, folks. You either welcome the king or you reject the king. It's one or two things. So based upon your response to Jesus being king, he'll either welcome you or reject you. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you so much for your mercy, for your grace, for your love. We thank you, God, that you are a king, that Jesus, you're a king, the king of kings, the Lord of lords, the alpha, the omega, the beginning and the end. Everything that came into being is there because of you. It's all created through you and by you and for you. Jesus, you would save us for yourselves to be holy and blameless before you, serving you, Lord.
Help us, God. Call us to this salvation, Father, this morning. I, I pray, God, that you would draw people to you. And Father, we pray that us Christians that are here in this room that are saved, that know that we know that we know where we're going when we die. Those Christians, you know, us Christians in this room that are producing fruit, we pray, Father, that we would recognize what it means uh, to accept the fact that you are a king and we are not. Because here's the thing, we like to get going in our ministries and our programs and our ideas and our things. And before you know it, before we know it, we, we pretty much assume the title of king, king of our lives, king of our ministry, king of our church, king of our whatever. And the fact is, God, that we are not king. So we pray that you would help us to hand it over to you humbly at your feet, God. This morning, God, we cry out, Hosanna, Hosanna. Save us now, Lord. This morning, Lord, I lay out my coat on this, on this invitation step for people to come and be saved, to experience um, the triumphal entry of Jesus Christ into their heart. Father, it's not the steps. It's not, it's not the altar call. It's not the prayer. It's faith. It's your grace. It's you that saves. So, God, we pray that you would move in this place this morning. It's in Christ's name that we pray. Amen. You guys can stand with me.